0: Well, if you've been with us uh, for the last number of months, you know we're talking about spiritual warfare. And uh, today we finish another section called The Evidence of a Conflict. And next week we're going to uh, begin looking at the ground of our victory in Christ. And this is kind of a transitional message <clears throat> because it shows evidence of the conflict and the ground of our victory. And we, uh, here, we are here in Genesis chapter 14, and it's tempting to read the whole passage, the whole chapter, but instead we'll pick it up beginning in verse 10. <clears throat> now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, pursued them to Hohab, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Ladies and gentlemen, there are certain passages in the Old and New Testament that should be highlighted. I would submit to you, if you begin to understand what God tells us here in this text, you will begin to understand a whole lot more about God, a whole lot more about you, and a whole lot more about why God made you and why he saved you. So let's get underway. Ten days ago, Ed Koch died. Ed Koch was a politician. He was a lawyer, member of Congress, political commentator, even an arbiter on a reality show. But what Ed Koch is best known for is his three terms as mayor of New York City. He was a lifelong Democrat, but he described himself as a liberal with sanity. Maybe that's why he crossed party lines from time to time. Maybe that's why he'd go through the whole city always saying, How am I doing? How am I doing? But clearly the most prominent feature of Ed Koch was his love for New York City. You know what he said one time? And he made it public. He said, I never want to leave Manhattan. Even when I die, I don't want to go to Jersey. So last week, they buried Ed Koch in a Dominican neighborhood. A Jewish, Polish mayor buried in a Dominican cemetery. Four years ago, he said to the uh, United Press International, that he had just come from getting his tombstone engraved. On that tombstone is the Star of David, a Hebrew prayer, and the words that Daniel Pearl said right before he was beheaded by terrorists in 2002. Remember what he said? My father was Jewish, my mother was Jewish, and I am Jewish. If you go to that cemetery, you'll see those words on Ed Ed Koch's uh, tombstone. And if you were to talk to Ed Koch, he would say that all began with Abraham. He's a descendant of Abraham, he would say. Now, according to Deuteronomy 26, every Jewish male was required one day a year, or one week a year, to bring the first fruits of their harvest to the priest before the altar. And when the man would appear with all of the first fruits of his harvest, he would always say the same thing. My father was a wandering Aramean. Now, why would he say that? Because by saying that, what he's saying is this. I didn't get here, and I didn't get this stuff on my own. In fact, what I hold in my hand is the product of a God who called my father out of a strange land and he planted him in this land, this promised land. These first fruits are the first fruits of God's blessing on my life. It's not about me. It's about the God of my father. Did you know that for years, critics of the Bible pointed to Genesis 14, and they said that's proof positive that the Bible is not historical fact because they couldn't find this king that's mentioned in the first uh, verse of the chapter, Amraphel, Amraphel of Shinar. You look at that first verse, you'll see him mentioned there. And they said, see, the Bible's full of lies. It's historical fallacy. There was no king called Amraphel of Shinar. They said that until the year 1901 when an Egyptian archaeologist digging in a place called Tel Hazar in the nation of Israel or the land of Palestine. He discovered cuneiform tablets called the Code of Hammurabi. And on those tablets is mentioned this king's name, amraphel And it's used that name as a synonym for another man whose name is Hammurabi. So King amraphel of Shinar is actually Hammurabi, the first king of Babylonia. And all of a sudden, the Bible lost thousands of critics. On well, the part we didn't read, a coalition of kings led by Hammurabi and Keto-Leomar and two other kings, four of them in total, they sweep down into the land where Sodom and Gomorrah are located. By the way, that's the current location of the Dead Sea. They sweep down and they plunder these city-states. They take captive the significant people in that town, like Lot, who sits in the gates of the city, one of the elders of the city. He takes, they take his family, they take his resources, and they take the wealth of these cities, and the Bible says they begin to, to sweep them away and they begin to head north. And as soon as that aggression occurs, the Bible says one person probably from Sodom escapes and comes to Abraham or Abram who's living by the trees of Mamre and he tells them all about it. And suddenly Abram begins to mobilize. And Abram does some things that are A clear sign of what God does, what God does in gaining us victory in spiritual warfare. And I would submit to you, if we understand what happens here in this account, we'll understand a lot more about ourselves, a lot more about God, a lot more about Jesus, and a lot more about the ground of our victory. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the values. After Abram's return from the David of keto and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Now, I want you to remember Tim's message last week in chapter 13. And f- reflect upon the difference between Abram in chapter 13 and Abram in 14. Now in 13, he says to his nephew, Lot, you know, we are having some problems here. Your men and your flocks, they're intermingling with my men and flocks, and there's, there's battles going on, or at least there's w- battles of words. So why don't we separate? You pick where you want to dwell, The Bible says he stands on a high place and he looks down and sees that valley down by the Jordan and he says, I want to go there. And Abram gives it to him. In chapter 13, Lot walks all over his uncle. He gives him his choice of dwelling places. He allows Lot to pick the best land that the eye can determine. Abram is a picture of restraint. He's the picture of compromise. In some sense, you could even argue that in chapter 13, Abram is a bit of a milk toast, but not in 14. <laughs> when the message comes, this land baron, this this owner of much, becomes a military mastermind. Meekness gives way to courage and strength. And you say, how can that be? The same guy in two different chapters acting totally different. And the the default position of the human heart is to say, well, there's a lot about people we don't always know. There's some hidden, hidden talents that lie deep within every one of us. And while that may be true, God does not highlight that. Instead, in verse 20, we read, Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered you, Abram, from your enemies into your hands. Now, for many people, they read that as a figure of speech. Something happens, you do something, and then somebody says, The Lord did that for you. It's a figure of speech to most people. It's spiritualizing a person's exploits. But you know something? God never does that. I want you to reflect upon a few things here. In chapter 14, Abram is somewhere between 80 and 90 years old. When word comes to him, he marshals his trained men, 318 of them, and they go in search of these marauders. Now, I want to focus on these trained men for a minute because there's a lot of misunderstanding. Two weeks ago, I heard D.A. Carson talk about this passage. Now, if you don't know D.A. Carson, you ought to know him because he teaches at Trinity Theological Seminary. He is, in the opinion of many, including R.C. Sproul, the greatest New Testament scholar alive today. And in talking about these trained men, he said, well, let me tell you a story about my son who's a special forces Marine. He was home recently, and we were talking, and we got into sort of a heated uh, debate, and unconsciously, I kind of smiled and hit him on the arm. And instantly, my son took his arm and put him around my neck and said, Dad, do you know how many ways I could kill you right now? (laughs) You know why you could say it? Because it's true. He knew a bunch of ways to kill his dad because after all, he's special forces Marine. And when you come here and you look at this description or this designation, trained men, the typical interpretation of that is these are military guys, and they're not. The designation literally means managers of land. In other words, these are farmers who are responsible for the security of the possessions of Abram. They're no military men, and yet the Bible says when word comes to Abram, who's not a military man, he takes off with 318 non-military men with some others, and they head north going after these kings and their troops to bring them to justice. Not only that, the Bible says they go all the way to past Damascus. You know how far Damascus is from where Abram is now? 120 miles He's over 80. He goes over 120 miles because the Bible says he goes past Damascus, or past Dan, past Damascus to a place called Hoba, which means hiding place. You know how far away that is? 185 miles. The Bible says this 80-something-year-old patriarch with his land managers travel round-trip nearly 400 miles, and they defeat the coalition of kings. How is that possible? God tells us, the Most High God has done this for you. And every Hebrew who reads those words would understand, God did it. This isn't Abram's fight. This isn't his trained men's fight. This is God's fight, and he supernaturally equips him to do what he does. Genesis 41, Pharaoh says to his advisors, Can we find anyone like Joseph in whom the Spirit of God dwells? The answer is no. What's he mean? He means that everything that Joseph has done is the result of divine endowment. Exodus 26, God calls Moses to build him a dwelling place, a tabernacle. He gives him the dimensions. He gives him the design. He gives him everything he needs. And then God says, I've put my spirit on certain men who will cut rock." who will craft stone, who will do the needlework, meaning what? God says, I will build my dwelling place and I'll equip men to do the work. And every Hebrew would know that. It's not Abram's doing, it's God's doing. But you know something, to our Greek Western minds, that's an anathema because we want to focus on human contribution, but God doesn't. You know, there's one guy in the story that is focusing on human contribution. That's the king of Sodom. He comes, the Bible says, to Abram at the valley of Sheva, the valley of the kings. And instead of praising God, all he can say is, give me what I want. Give me what's mine. All he's interested in is what's in it for him. That's what he values. Now, does that sound familiar to you? That is the spirit of Satan. And that's a spirit that was rife in the time of Abraham. And it's clearly extant and exploding in our day. Second, notice, if you will, the vision. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. And Abram gave a tenth, him a tenth of everything. One time John Knox, who was the great Scottish reformer and the founder of the Presbyterian Church, was asked if he was nervous about meeting the Queen of Scotland. You know what he said? He said, I've just come from spending four hours with the God of the universe. How can she impress me? You know, that's what Abram pretty much says to the king of Sodom. Listen to what he says. I will take nothing from you because you will then be able to say, I made Abram. You ask any practicing Jew, who is the greatest person in the Old Testament? They'll tell you, Abraham. You know what God says? That's not true. There is one who's greater. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 7 says, The lesser Abraham or Abram is blessed by the greater Melchizedek. There is one person in the Old Testament who is by far and away the greatest person that we see on those pages and his name is Melchizedek. Let's look at his name for a minute. It m- means King of righteousness. Melech, king, and Zadok, righteousness. Now, the word Zadok is one of the most popular words in all of Hebrew. In fact, it's used more than 500 times in the Bible, righteousness. And yet, when you listen to most Christians talk about what righteousness means, you find that they miss the meaning altogether. And one of the reasons they miss it is because they don't understand this text. Maybe it's William Tyndale's fault. In 1517, William Tyndale was the first man who translated the Hebrew Scriptures into English. And when he came to the word Zadok, he translated it this way, to do the right thing. Righteousness, to do the right thing. And you know something? Every religion in the world has a concept of righteousness, and it would always define it the same way, to do the right thing. Moral rectitude, uprightness. And so when you read, for instance, that Job was a man full of righteousness, immediately we say to ourselves, he is more virtuous, he is more morally upright than any other person. When we read about Enoch, who was a righteous man who walked with God, we immediately think that intrinsically he is better than anyone else. But ladies and gentlemen, that is absolutely unfounded in Scripture because the definition of the word righteousness does not mean morally upright or to do the right thing. And the evidence is Romans chapter 3. Where Paul says, no one is righteous, no not one. Now how can the Bible lie? How can the Bible say no one is righteous, no not one. But yet the Bible can say that Job and Abram and Seth and Enoch, they're all righteous. How can that be? And the answer is found in the definition of the word, Zadok righteousness Is first and foremost an attribute of God. Righteousness literally means the character of God. And David understood this. That's why he says in Psalm 16, God's judgments are true and righteous altogether. Why? Because they flow from his own character. You see, as a Pharisee, Paul understood that there's only one way for a man to be judged righteous, and that's for him to keep the law. The problem is nobody could keep it. And when he's converted by the Spirit of God, when he's regenerated, he understands what Luther understood. He is in deep weeds because there's only one way that a person can be made acceptable to a holy God, and that's for them to do everything right, and nobody does it. So, what's the answer? The answer is an alien righteousness. An answer is a righteousness that comes from outside of us. Whose righteousness is it? It is the character of God, and that's exactly what happens to every Christian on the cross. You ask Paul, what would induce God to turn his favor on a man and woman? It can't be the righteousness of a man or woman, it has to be the righteousness of another. So look at what happens here. The Bible says a man comes out to greet Abram. He has no genealogy. He has no mother or father. He has no beginning or end. And he is not just righteous. He is the king of righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. And what is he doing there? He's there to give, to bestow On Abram, everything he is and everything he has. Do you get this? You tracking? Okay, third and finally, look at the vow. But But Abram said to the king of Sodom, "'I've lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, "'possessor of heaven and earth, "'that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap "'or anything that is yours.'" In other words, Abram disses him. (laughs) What would cause him to shun this king? There's only one thing that would cause him to say that. His vision of this other king, the king of Salem, the king of righteousness. Did you know that from Moses all the way through Jesus Christ, God forbid anyone from being a king and a priest at the same time. Saul tried it, and God destroyed him. But notice here, this man is not only the king of righteousness, he's the priest of the most high God. This man occupies the same position that Lucifer occupied in heaven before he fell. He is the priest of the most high God. That's exactly the same thing that Lucifer wanted to be. Remember in the 14th chapter of Isaiah, I will be like the Most High God? That's the name he uses for God. And God casts Lucifer out. And yet this one who comes is not only the king of righteousness, he's the priest of the Most High God. You know the name for God there? It's El Elyon. It literally means the God who possesses heaven and earth, everything. That's what Lucifer wanted to be. That's why he's cast out of heaven. But notice this man occupies that same position he's king and priest. And so when the king of Sodom comes to Abram and he wants everything for himself, he wants to possess what he doesn't have just like Lucifer but notice when the king of Salem the king of righteousness comes he doesn't want anything he wants to give what he has why because he already possesses everything four times in the space of five verses we see the name of God and it's always the same one El Elyon the Most High God and that should tell you something In chapter 12, when God calls Abram for the first time and introduces himself, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that Abram saw the glory of God. So he understood God as to be glorious. Later in that same chapter... Abram builds an altar at a place called Bethel, the house of God, and God shows up and God identifies himself as Jehovah, the God who saves. So he understands God is glorious and the God who saves. But notice here, right outside Jerusalem, right before God cuts the covenant with Abram, where God promises by his own life, God appears to Abram as El Elyon, the possessor of everything. Why does he appear like that to Abram? Because he's got an agenda, and his agenda is to give Abram everything he needs. Look what he gives him. The Bible says he comes with bread in his hand. What's bread symbolized in Scripture? It symbolizes life. John chapter 6 is one place you can see that. Also, he holds in his hand wine, symbolizing what? Joy, John chapter 2, and many other places. So the king of Salem comes past or into the valley of Sheva, and there he meets Abram, and he gives Abram everything he needs. Life, joy, and a brand new future. No wonder Abram says to the king of Sodom, I don't want anything from you, lest you say you made me. For in the presence of the king of righteousness, he knows that there is really only one that can make him, and it's this one, the king of righteousness. And you know what? If I were Tim, I'd say, this fires me up. (laughs) A thousand years later, in exactly the same place, another man named King David will show up. And there... In the valley of Sheva, right outside Jerusalem, God will meet him and David will declare, You are my Lord, I have no goodness except in you. And a thousand years after David, the disciples of Jesus Christ will come exactly to the same place and there. They will meet face to face the King of righteousness, the Prince of peace, the possessor of all things. And you know what he'll do? He'll lift the bread and he'll break it and say, This is my body and it's broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me because that's what you need, my life. And then he'll lift the wine. You'll say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you will show forth my death and all that it means. What does it mean? It means that in Christ we receive life and joy and a brand new future. And it all happens in the same place, right outside Salem, the city of Salem, Jerusalem. That's what this table is all about. It's all about his righteousness. It's all about his victory. It's all about his glory. And he has given it to you and me. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is only one ground of victory for you and me in the spiritual war. And the ground of that victory... Is Jesus Christ the author and the finisher of our faith? Aren't you glad it's not about you? Aren't you glad it's all about Him? Aren't you glad He didn't ask for an entrance fee? He came and He gave to you. No wonder Jesus said, Without me, you can do nothing. That's not a compliment. It's a profound truth that produces in everyone who gets it, life and joy in a brand new future.